0: Hey, people. So this is an off the cuff announcement. Uh, for those of you who follow tw- me on Twitter, which please keep doing that. It's very amusing. Uh, I'm going down to Australia next month, which is an incredibly big deal. I'm not stopping the podcast. In fact, I actually intend to do a series of not so much lost well there will be a little bit of lost treasureness to it but um some collaborations hopefully some investigations into kind of weird adventure-esque australian stuff when i'm down there i have yet to decide if that's going to be a limited series that i'm going to squeeze between um the season break not sure yet maybe it'll go on patreon but you'll definitely know about it i am going to let everyone know that there will probably be a little bit of a buffer period um after the last like the i think the second week in january um when i'm not going to be releasing any content because i'm migrating to another continent on the other side of the planet so that's just to say around second week of january expect the last episode for i would say a couple of weeks until i get my feet on the ground i'll still be active on twitter yeah so that's that um And I have an ear infection as of this recording, so I'm going to really do my best with this. But, you know, it'd be like that. Okay, bye. Samarkand, capital of the Khwarezmia Empire, 1219. Nobody knew when the city had been founded. It had always just been there. And even thousands of years later, our best historians can only hypothesize the origins of the eternal city of Samarkand, the bejeweled hub of the Silk Road. A treasure unto itself, it had been lost and won by the likes of the Persian Empire and Alexander the Great. It was the center of trade along hundreds of miles of the Silk Road, the ancient trading network that stretched from the coasts of eastern China, the Middle East, North Africa, all the way to Turkey. Civilization would not be civilization without it, because not only were spices, minerals, and obviously silk, carried along its reaches, but religions, philosophies, medicine, cultural understanding, and inventions as well. After Alexander the Great, Samarkand and the wider Khwarezmia Empire was ruled over by a succession of Islamic nobles, including the proud Shah Allah Adin Muhammad, The Shah was actually quite new to town, having only recently taken hold of the territory. He was, as you're about to find out, a bit impulsive and tempestuous, having already made an enemy of the Caliph of Baghdad, which was a rival city and the center of Islamic faith. Up until that point of time, it was customary of the leaders of the great cities to pay tribute to the Caliph, but the Shah was, well, he had an undeserved sense of entitlement about him. Much like the Michelle to the Caliph's Beyonce, this did not work out so well for him either, and before long the Shah was sending his troops down to the southern borders to address this conflict with his neighbors. But just then, a new kid came onto the scene. A young upstart by the name of Genghis Khan, who was in charge of a little something called the Mongol Empire, which was sweeping across Asia. And if you have any general knowledge of ancient history, you know what Genghis Khan was about and where this is going. Not good places. And you'd be right, except Genghis Khan, and yes, that is how you pronounce it, I looked it up, was a lot more complicated than a genocidal maniac, with a lot of wives. And while he was all those things, the first thing you'd be surprised to know is that he was actually very reasonable and diplomatic. Such was the case when he sent a message to the Shah of the Khwarezmd Empire, which read, I am master of the lands of the rising sun, while you rule those of the setting sun. Let us conclude a firm treaty of friendship and peace. Which sounds like a pretty solid opener. While Shah Muhammad agreed, he wasn't thrilled about having to make nice with the new neighbors, all of whom were still mighty suspicious about those Mongols. And mostly because one of the Shah's ambassadors in China had seen what they'd done to the Jin dynasty, and spoilers, it wasn't pretty. So Genghis Khan did what every man should do on a first date, and sent a caravan of 500 strong to the doorstep of the Shah's empire for some sweet, sweet exchange of commerce. Because Genghis Khan was surprisingly tolerant of people's religions, he also knew his audience and made sure to send along a specifically Muslim envoy. But when the caravan arrived at the city of Alchar, its governor, Enalchuk, immediately arrested them all under suspicion of espionage. Genghis understood this was a huge misunderstanding, and mistakes do happen, diplomacy just be like that sometimes, so he sent three ambassadors, one Muslim and two Mongolian, to try and clear up any misunderstanding. But as soon as they arrived, the Shah took control of the situation and immediately had the Mongols shaved in humiliation and his own fellow Muslim beheaded. Bad idea. When the Khan's ambassadors arrived without an inch of hair on their heads, Genghis was furious. He considered diplomats and ambassadors on the same level as priests for their duties in keeping peace among nations, and so he took this as a grave insult. It was one that the Shah, as well as pretty much all of the Khwarezmian Empire, would soon come to regret. But we'll get there in a bit. For all of Genghis Khan's notoriety, which includes taking over most of the known world and decimating the population of Asia by 5%, there isn't a whole lot known about his death and burial. Where was Genghis Khan buried, and what treasures would you entomb with one of the most feared emperors of the last millennium? For such a renowned leader, the two most essential pieces of Genghis Khan's timeline are somewhat of a mystery, that being his birth and death. The boy who would become Genghis Khan was born near the Mongolian river Onan, roughly around 1162, to the son of a clan chieftain. His given name was Temujin, and it was said that he was born clutching a blood clot in his fist, an indicator that he was destined for greatness. But within the first nine years of his life, Temujin was mostly destined for an arranged marriage. His father handed him over to the patriarch of House Dai Setsen, a neighboring clan, to work as a servant. At age 12, he was to marry one of the daughters of the clan, Borte. Temujin lived in a world where one's destiny was tightly controlled, and from an early age, the future ruler of the Mongol Empire was expected to follow the script. While indentured at House Dai Setsen, Temujin's father, the clan leader, was intercepted on a return journey home by the rival Tatars. Instead of combat, the Tatars offered the clan leader food and drink. It was a trap. The food was poisoned, and Temujin's father died. The young man returned home to try and take his place as the new chieftain, but the clan deemed Temujin an inexperienced outsider, acting against what was expected of him, and they abandoned him and his family to their fates. The family of the former chieftain fell into desperate poverty, and for the next several years they had to forage for food on their own. No doubt, this humiliation and denigration shaped Temujin's future character. He was also bitterly angry at his half-brother, Begder, who had made overtures to not only take over as head of the abandoned clan, but to marry Temujin's mother as well. Temujin's mother, Ho Lin, was recognized as a wise and honorable woman who had raised Temujin in absence of a father and taught him the importance of diplomacy. Naturally, Temujin wasn't going to let some startup defile his mom, so he responded by taking Begter out on a hunting expedition and killed him. Happy times, people! Believe it or not, it got worse for our future Khan. Since his family was without protection, Temujin was captured during a raid by a rival clan. Somehow, he managed to convince one of the guards to let him escape, which he did, and he would later go on to appoint the guard and his son as two of his future generals. At age 16, Temujin married his arranged wife, Borte, and by historical accounts, they were deeply in love. So much so that when Borte was captured by the Merkit clan, Temujin rounded up his best men, including his future rival Jamuka, and stormed into the Merkit territory to successfully rescue his wife. Though the future Genghis Khan would take on over 500 other wives, you know how it be. Borte would remain his only official empress. And because nobody can resist a dramatic love story, this war against the Merkit earned Temujin major acclaim. However, it ended up putting him at odds with Jamukha. You see, as leader of one of the other major tribes, Jamukha favored a traditional Mongolian monarchy system. But Temujin had suffered firsthand at the failings of the aristocratic tradition, and advocated for a very forward-thinking, merit-based system when it came to awarding positions and titles. Which must have been a good platform, because after a renowned shaman proclaimed Temujin their future leader, he ascended as Khan of the Mongols in 1186. Jamukha responded in kind by raising an army of 30,000 strong and overthrowing the new leader. But it wasn't a clean victory, and Jamukha was very bad at optics especially when he decided it would be a good idea to boil 70 youths from Temujin's army alive, a horrific statement that only ended up backfiring on the usurper. The public would not accept him. Besides, you can't keep a con out of the game for too long. And in 1197, the exiled Temujin teamed up with the Chinese Jin Empire to overthrow the Tatars, who, remember, had killed Temujin's father. The Jin then restored Temujin to power as leader of the Mongols, He immediately went about shaking things up. First, he actually paid his soldiers, which was shockingly a big deal. He also practiced a less, shall we say, killy form of conquest, where he would integrate conquered tribes and clans into his fold and offer them his protections and benefits. His mother, Holun, would even take in and foster the orphans of the soldiers that Temujin's armies had killed. By 1206, Temujin had managed to unite or subdue the main tribes and kingdoms of the region and unite them under a unified Mongol Empire. He was bestowed the title Genghis Khan, meaning universal sovereign. And he really was a big deal, especially when it came to influencing the Silk Road. Of important note was Genghis Khan's tolerance for most religions, and in his region of the world, there were a lot of them. Though he himself worshipped the traditional Mongolian sky god Tengri, Genghis Khan was a multiculturalist who was interested in what philosophies and wisdoms other religions had to offer. He also introduced the concept of paper currency and a postal system. A few hundred years after Genghis Khan's reign, Italian diplomat and philosopher Niccolò Machiavelli would ask the question, is it better to be feared or loved? Genghis Khan inspired both fear and love from his subjects in equal measure, and found it to be a recipe for success. By the time Shah Allah ad Muhammad of Samarkand had captured Genghis Khan's peace brokers, the leader of the Mongol Empire was already known for his fierce reputation. But this didn't stop the Shah from contesting the Khan's authority. In 1219, the Mongols traversed the Tian Shan Mountains, a natural border between the Mongol and Khwarezmia Empire, and launched their brutal assault. The first city to fall was the one that had captured Genghis Khan's diplomats, the city of Otrar, ruled by Enolchuk. The siege went on for months, until a frustrated individual named Koracha, who despised both the Shah and Enolchuk, betrayed his leadership and opened the gates to the Mongol army. Enolchuk fled to the tallest spire on his fortress, and pathetically began throwing its roof tiles down at the invasion, until he was captured and executed. But this did not stay the Khan's wrath. The next city to fall was Bukhara, which the Mongols virtually snuck into by enlisting the guidance of captured nomads. They were able to guide the Mongols through the once-thought impenetrable desert by way of a network of oases. This effectively brought the Mongols to Bukhara's back door, and thwarted any strategy the Shah and his army had intended to implement. Most of Bukhara's citizens were killed or enslaved, and the city razed to the ground. Next came Samarkand, the Shah's seat of power. Having captured enough of the enemy, the Mongols decided to make use of their victims by using them as body shields against the Samarkand garrison's bows and arrows. Genghis Khan had particularly bad blood for Samarkand, and its downfall marks one of the more especially brutal chapters in his reign. But nothing was to compare to the fate of the cities of Urgench and Merv. After Merv was taken, the Mongol army slaughtered most of the city's soldiers, and had their blood, quite a lot of it, collected in troughs. Genghis Khan's son and general, Tolui, decreed that the women and children were to be evacuated from the city and escorted to safety. But after the populace had been led into the fields outside town, Tului appeared, sat upon a golden chair, and gave his men an order. Each soldier, 7,000 in total, was to kill 300 citizens each. The soldiers then proceeded to behead, slit the throats, and, putting to use the gallons of blood at their disposal, drown the people of Merv. Afterwards, Tolui took the skulls of his victims and arranged a massive pyramid outside the vacant city walls as a warning to those who would repeat the Shah's same mistakes. In total, the slaughter took four days to complete. The same was said to have occurred in the city of Urgench, with reports of over 1.2 million people killed by the Mongols. But many of these numbers are something of historical conjecture and legendary speculation. It is also recorded that the Mongols were one of the first armies to make use of biological warfare, which they did so by catapulting the bodies of deceased cadavers over the walls of enemy cities. So here's a breakdown of just how many people died under Genghis Khan's conquests. 700,000 people were killed during the sacking of Merv, and more than a million in the city of Nishapur. Due to a combination of genocide and resulting famine, the entire population of Persia may have dropped from 2,500,000 to 250,000. The population of actual China fell from 120 million inhabitants to just around roughly 60 million people. But history cautions us that some of this might just have been due to poor census taking procedures during the 13th century. As for what we would recognize today as modern Russia and Ukraine, the Mongols killed about half the population as a whole after their siege of Kiev, and they left 2 million dead in Hungary. Genghis Khan shaped civilization for both the better and worse during his time, more often than not taking on the role of history's vengeful god. Yet, for so much that's been recorded about his life, it's his death and burial location that remains one of the greatest mysteries behind Mongolia's founding father. In August 1227, Genghis Khan led a campaign against the Empire of Western Jia. During the fall of its capital, he, well, he just seemingly up and died. And nobody really knows how or what happened to him. Some Mongolian historians believe he died after falling from a horse, either in battle or while hunting, having succumbed to his injuries due to his old age. Marco Polo, the great Italian adventurer, thought highly of Genghis Khan and recorded in his diaries that he believed the Mongol emperor had died from an infection that resulted after he'd been shot by an arrow. One Mongol story from the 17th century says that Genghis Khan had taken a young Zhao princess as hostage and, after concealing a dagger, she straight-up stabbed him to death, which is awesome, but also unlikely to have actually occurred. So, nobody really knows how he died, but there's even more legends surrounding where he was buried. A man who had taken over most of the known world, and killed a good lot of it, was likely to have been given quite the burial, and wherever great kings are entombed, it stands to reason that a lot of great treasure gets sealed up with them. Such was the case with the pharaohs of Egypt, Uh, this not being a visual medium, just know that I am gesturing broadly to all of those museums filled with gold artifacts and sarcophagi. And if you go back and listen to episode two of this show, you can learn all about Emperor Qin Shi Huang and all the crazy stuff that ended up buried with him. It is said that Genghis Khan's funeral procession killed anybody they happened to come across during the journey back to Mongolia in hopes of keeping his burial a secret. The body of Genghis Khan was presumably returned to his place of birth by the Onan River, after which slaves were ordered to complete the task of returning the Mongol Emperor to the earth. After their labor was done, the soldiers were then ordered to kill them, so that the secrets of Genghis Khan's tomb would die with them. A little ways away, another wave of soldiers came upon them and killed them as well. You know, just in case. But aside from concealing the body of one of history's baddest dudes, why all the drama? Historians and theorists alike have speculated that it was most likely done to deter grave robbing, and they have some good ideas of what might have been concealed along with the Khan's body, based on the burials of other Mongolian Chinese leaders. For example, such artifacts might have included chariots, precious metals and stones, Roman glassware, animal skins, and possibly Genghis Khan's most coveted horses. But since it's been hundreds and hundreds of years and not a soul has any clue to the whereabouts of the tomb, locating the resting place of the Great Khan is challenging, to say the least. It might even be impossible altogether, if we go by what folklore says. Tradition states that after the Khan's burial, the executors of his will and testament diverted a portion of the Onan River over his grave to keep it hidden forever. More overkill variations state that the grave was alternatively stampeded over by horses, and then trees planted over the site to create a forest. There is an apocryphal account of a local following a camel into the mountainous terrain surrounding the Onan, only to find it weeping on a mound where its son was presumably buried as a tribute with the Mongol leader. I will assume Genghis Khan didn't kill the camel in question, but you know, based on everything else you've heard so far, the odds ain't too good for that camel, just saying. Marco Polo, that gossip queen, wrote that he was pretty sure the Mongols didn't even know where Genghis Khan was truly buried, but he was told that all of the Khans were traditionally interred in a mountain called Altai. While the Altai mountain range does exist, and there have been burial grounds of nomads found within the vicinity, there are no records of any sort of royal interment to be found here. Echoing Polo's sentiments, scholars of the Yuan Dynasty in China frequently believed that all of the Khans following Genghis were to be buried in a place they called the Qinyan Valley. However, they neglected to, you know, tell anybody where exactly that place was. Yet if we tug on the he-was-buried-near-a-special-mountain thread, we find that there are actually a few different places in Mongolia that might fit the bill. One of the more suspicious candidates is the Burkhan Khaldan Mountain. According to The Secret History of the Mongols, an ancient Mongolian text that gives us both the historical and more legendary accounts of the great Khan's life, Temujin retreated to this sacred mountain after his initial defeat at the hands of the Merkit. Here, the man who would be Khan had a sort of Luke on Dagobah moment where he came into spiritual oneness with his god, offering prayers and receiving blessings. Not long after this episode, Genghis Khan got his groove back, and the rest, of course, is history. It stood to reason that he might want to be buried here on this mountain, of all places. It's also raised a few eyebrows that the area around Burkhan Khaldun has traditionally been referred to as the Great Taboo, and was entirely sealed off to everybody, with trespassing punishable by death. However, this ban has since been lifted, and the area has been opened up to archaeologists as well as those on spiritual pilgrimages to the Holy Mountain. And then there's the fact that, oh, and gee, we're waiting for it, the tomb is allegedly cursed. And why not? Some believe this ties back to the alleged curse that befell the world when Tamerlan, or Timur, another Mongol leader and supposed descendant of Genghis Khan, had his tomb exhumed in 1941. While the following is unverified. The popular belief is that upon opening his tomb, Soviet archaeologists discovered an inscription that read, When I rise from the dead, the world shall tremble. And if that wasn't enough to freak people out, inside Tamerlan's casket itself, it read, Whomsoever opens my tomb shall unleash an invader more terrible than I. Three days later, critically acclaimed terrible invader Adolf Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. Bad things happen, amber rooms go missing, and Tamerlane's ghost is just there flipping everyone off. Tamerlane was then buried with Islamic funerary customs in November 1942, not long before the Russians drove away the Nazis at the Battle of Stalingrad. So yeah, people are a bit wary of finding and opening Genghis Khan's tomb, with some naysayers predicting that it would usher in World War III, possibly at the hands of China. And all of this leads to the efforts of an amateur archaeologist and adventurer named Maury Kravitz, probably no relation to Lenny, who had made the search for Genghis Khan's tomb, his personal white whale, one that he hunted for over 40 years. His hunt led him to a 15th century document, written by a French Jesuit priest, who stated that Genghis Khan had explicitly told his generals to bury him near the Burkhan Khaldun mountain, between the Khirlen and Bruchi rivers. While the name Bruchi didn't correlate outright to any known landmark, there was a location referred to as Bruch that fit the bill. In 2006, Kravitz began to dig at the intended site, but almost immediately, strange incidents began to plague the excavation. This included the discovery of a wall over two miles long and seemingly filled with vipers that attacked his workers. Parked cars belonging to the dig team also inexplicably began to roll down the hillsides, which is terribly inconvenient. Lastly, the Mongolian prime minister put the kibosh on any further meddling in the area. Kravitz intended to return with more concrete research, but he never got the chance. He died six years later in 2012, more likely a byproduct of an old age than a curse. But you never know... What we can actually gather from history is that Genghis Khan had already dictated the terms of his burial to his close associates years before his final campaign. In accordance with his tribe's customs, he was to be given a relatively simple burial, perhaps without any frills or trinkets. Nevertheless, it's readily apparent, from a cursory glance at history and character, that Genghis Khan really didn't want people knowing where he was buried. For someone who both terrorized and indeed helped to build up the eastern world, his humble approach to death is a contradictory element of an already contradictory figure. It's hard to say if Genghis Khan considered himself a man of the people, though he was certainly respected by his own kin, but when all is said and done, a hidden tomb with little fanfare does make sense when you examine the Great Khan's complicated life. Despite the impossible task of locating his tomb, that hasn't stopped modern efforts. In fact, recent developments suggest that we have been closer than ever to coming across his burial place, which still isn't saying much. In October of 2004, the combined efforts of a Japanese Mongolian archeological dig uncover what is now believed to have once been Genghis Khan's palace, with further research ongoing. And as recently as 2016, a French expedition has begun to pinpoint a possible location at the top of the Burkhan Kalden Mountain, using drone technology. This possible mound, 250 meters in diameter, appears to be artificial, but its construct is more in keeping with the ancient Chinese than the Mongolians. Most Mongolian historians are content to leave the burial place of Genghis Khan a mystery for the ages not because of a supposed apocalyptic curse, but out of respect for a man whom they hold in high regard. When you weigh the good and the bad with Genghis Khan, you might start to realize that many of history's greats were just as problematic as they were progressive. And it's likely that if Genghis Khan was as meticulous and cunning in life, then no doubt he would have made sure that his secrets would remain just that, in death. This episode of Relic was written and produced by me, Maxwell. If you like this episode and want to help me conquer the podcast world, then you can give me a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. You can also connect with me at Wash Treasure Pod on Twitter and check out our Patreon. We'll actually be having some new Patreon content very shortly. I am doing a collaboration with Spoop Hour, and if you're a nerd or like video games, definitely stay tuned. Next time a short episode just in time for the holidays the new testament speaks of the three wise men who attended the birth of jesus of nazareth but offers little in the ways of identification who might have been the historical candidates for these three travelers and what was the significance of their treasures the adventure continues